Hey everyone, welcome to the Sneaker History Podcast, where we dive into the people, stories, and iconic moments that have helped make sneakers a global phenomenon. If you've ever told someone that you like their kicks, then you're in the right place. Before we lace up this episode, here's a little teaser for you. Stick around to the end of each episode for the last shot question. It's a chance to test your sneaker knowledge and engage with our community. I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com slash newsletter for a weekly deep dive into the biggest topics in the sneaker business. All right, now that the business is taken care of, grab your favorite pair of kicks and let's get started with the episode. What up, what up? Welcome back to the Sneaker History Podcast. Hey, before we get into this episode, I wanted to tell you about a couple of our partners. These are some of the folks that help us keep the podcast going, and they've been nice enough to offer some exclusive discounts for our listeners. Now, if you've watched us on YouTube, you all know how we love to display our kicks when we're not rocking them. Sneaker Throne makes sneaker display cases featuring customizable LED lights, drop side cases to showcase your entire shoe, not just the heel, not just the toe, shoe trees, a number of other sneaker-related accessories. You can save 10% on your Sneaker Throne order by using the code HISTORY. You can find a link to Sneaker Throne in the description, or you can just head to sneakerhistory.com slash sneakerthrone, and it will send you directly to their site. Again, that's 10% off with the code HISTORY. Our friends at Prospect are the premier streetwear brand and sneaker boutique based in sunny San Diego, California. One of my favorite places. Prospect is not your typical hypebeast haven, though. They carry classic footwear from brands like Asics, New Balance, Puma, Saucony, as well as local and globally known streetwear brands like Belief, Illust, Rottweiler, Stussy, and many others. Not to mention their own Prospect label and the iconic Just a Kid from Dago collection. If you're a listener of the podcast, you can save 10% on all of your orders from Prospect through their website with the code HISTORY10. That's promo code HISTORY10 at prspctsd.com. If you or someone you know is interested in sponsoring the podcast or becoming a partner with our community, get in touch with us. You can reach us by email at podcast at sneakerhistory.com, and we'll get back to you with information about how we can partner. And now for today's episode... Georgian trying to shake off starts. Oh, what a move! LeBron James with no regard for human life. Final seconds. Bryant for the win. Iverson against Gill. The crowd on its feet. Allen for the win. Hey, good morning, good evening, good afternoon. I'm sure I botched that order, but nevertheless, it's another Friday where we're going to go through the Sneaker History Book Club. Today, I have the illustrious Matt Sullivan, author of Can't Knock the Hustle, Inside the Season of Protest, Pandemic, Progress with the Brooklyn Nets, Superstars of Tomorrow. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Of course. And as is sneaker history tradition, and I think we heard through the grapevine, you're a sneakerhead. So we have a segment in our episodes called What Are You Rocking and What Are You Copping? So if you don't mind sharing with us, what are you rocking or what have you rocked in the last couple of days? And what are you hoping to cop in the near future? I got the Union 4s here. Uh, okay. Somehow won the the raffle straight through Union. I had a nightmare of getting the shipping here that involves several neighbors from my old place and matching billing addresses so uh, I'm, I'm happy to finally be, be rocking them of course I stained them the first day I did get them so I'm, I'm suffering but uh, by cleaning at the same time a tough life I know and uh, this morning I entered what will be uh, certainly one of many future failed drawings and raffles for the, the new fragment Travis Lowe's which 
I don't even want to imagine how much they're going to cost at resale, let alone how many bots have already um, begun to infiltrate Travis's site. So we'll see. Uh, the worst case for me is always uh, copying some some Travis merch. Uh, I wear my Cactus Jack uh, shorts almost every day, and I, I think I got a backpack coming again with some shipping nightmare to come because it takes like three months for them to even send anything in the mail these days. Now, that's what I was reading because a couple of our listeners who are on our Patreon were lamenting something similar because they got access to the website, and some of them even bought, I think it was a fragment in the highs, um, yeah. Yeah. And they were just saying, yeah, this is not for another five weeks. We're going to get this. So I was like, man, you. I, as as an old in this case, because this is the first artist in my lifetime that I'm like, I really respect what he's doing. I just don't get into it. So I just let the kids rock, so to speak. But it is something to be said that he is kind of inspiring this post Yeezy run in terms of athletic footwear. So good on you. Best of luck. We'll send you some of our good vibes as well. Fingers crossed. But- Yeah, fingers crossed indeed. So we wanted to first get into this book. And the first thing I wanted to chat with you specifically about is one of the opening scenes in the book. And it's at a Nets press conference. And I think everybody's just shooting the breeze or the shit, depending on where you are. And you're kind of talking to KD about the fact that this is a different type of book. So I was hoping if you could go into what you initially meant with that statement and then cover some of your background, because it is truly fascinating compared to the average sports writer that we see usually associated with this type of book. Yeah, I think I was actually complimenting his Travis Lowe's at the time. He was changing out of his KDs, throwing on like a Balenciaga hoodie and you know, spraying his sponsored deodorant, which had kind of been the only thing in his locker room all year. And he was finally starting to show up. This is right before the pandemic hits in earnest. And he kind of scared a lot of the other sports writers like when he did show up. But I had been to his crib and kind of been around him. And I think it was clear from his teammates perspective who'd been around more than his Achilles injured season that I didn't really consider myself an expert in X's and O's and didn't want this book to be about that at all I mean if you read it in 350 odd pages there's really not a lot of on-court action save for the occasional you know Kyrie LeBron stare down or whatever mm-hmm. and then I, I just I got to talking to KD about you know how so many of his teammates were talking politics in the other corner of the room, how Kyrie was one of the misunder, most misunderstood athletes since Kaepernick, which he agreed with, and how I, I said you know no offense, but I don't really care about your on the court stuff. I mean this team has so many I think the word the phrase Renaissance men is kind of thrown around a little too jargony, but just interesting human beings, uh, you know, smart guys who do who, who represent a lot of the vanguard of where we've come, you know, kind of in the footsteps of LeBron over the last 10 years, which my book also traces. It's not just an embed with the Nets. It's about the rise of player empowerment and, and hoops culture, sneaker culture, what have you. And, and you know, Katie and I got to talking about how a police killing had almost, you know, protested, almost shut down a game for another one of his teammates a couple of years earlier. So a lot of this had eerie kind of you know, presaging of, of what would come in the in the months ahead and, and the, the history book I sort of fell into. So that was kind of my deal with, with the Nets, with the players, was that, you know, I, I'm not here to do what your average sports player does. And, and I've, I've done a lot of more serious journalism in my career, and I think, you know, that ingratiated me them to them a little, but not just as a reporter, but kind of as an intellectual peer. Yep. And I kind of wanted to give your other non-basketball related work a plug as well, because I got to some of it and I thought it was very fascinating. And I think the biggest thing for me was you oversaw the investigation of every police killing in America. Was that over a duration in time or could you talk a little bit about that? Because I know so much of this book deals with that off the court stuff that you had mentioned. 
Yeah, so I, I started my career at Esquire magazine. You know, we did a little bit of sports, but um, really got into politics on, on the reg. And then at the Atlantic, I oversaw breaking news from Boston bombing to Sandy Hook and, and New York Times. I did a lot of stuff on opinion and across all the spectrum. And, and then when I, when I was a top editor at The Guardian, you know, I, I did a lot of work in the aftermath of Ferguson. And then we realized that every police killing wasn't really being tracked by the government. And so we launched a two-year investigation into, yeah, every face, every circumstance and followed it up. And you know, over the course of those years, and then in my reporting for this book, just just met so many mothers of the movement who'd lost far too many, um, you know, future hoopers to to gun violence and and police violence. And so, you know, that's something I was interested in. I think it's something that the NBA has been at the forefront of of really pushing and, and learning how to be maybe not advocates, maybe not activists, but something in between. And so, to be able to speak to you know the mothers of of Samaria Rice. Sorry, Samaria Rice, who, who's Tamir Rice's mom, and and you know what LeBron did and didn't do when he, this young twelve-year-old boy was you know killed for what carrying a toy gun in a playground miles from from the Cavs mm-hmm. arena, and and I think looking at at you know the the voices of the voiceless and and the mothers of the movement, not just the celebrity voices, is something I really tried to give equal weight to in this book. You'll see, and in, in, even in the first chapter, I interviewed like the head of Instagram about Kyrie's influence versus Donald Trump. And then two paragraphs later, there's like the seventh grader on Kyrie's old middle school team saying, you know, I love all Kyrie's IG posts, even the weird ones. So I think that's kind of the balance of this book that makes it not just your average sports book. So thank you for using that quote, because that was something I was going to ask you about. So seamless transition here. You mentioned that because I think Kyrie Irving is, in the best way imaginable, the poster boy for this golden era of mental health talks, because we're so used to, prior to this century, we just treat our athletes like superhuman robots. And we kind of see it with the Simone Biles twisties controversy. And I use that term very loosely because it's not a controversy. She has a better understanding of that job than any of us will ever do. So Facts. I have to support her. But yeah, you mentioned the fact that, okay, Kyrie's posts are inspiring, even the weird ones. Shout out to, I think, the random seventh grader. But it was a contrast to what I remember Kyrie kind of saying. He almost kind of hates the showmanship of the game, which is interesting because he's probably one of the most preeminent dribblers of all time. And there is a certain quality to Kyrie where he's kind of been dubbed the enigma of the century by some of his teammates. Other people say he's misunderstood and very passionate. Talk to me about Kyrie because you're also a blue devil, much like Kyrie. Did you have any preconceptions of him coming into the story? And did any of that change? And if so, how? I tried to go in knowing that Kyrie had been made into a villain by the NBA media. He's an easy target because he pushes buttons, because he considers himself to be an intellectual. And, and he had you know, been pushing buttons in a out-there way, a heady kind of flat-earther way, but he'd come kind of almost full circle, if you will, to really considering himself to be not just a kind of secret humanitarian, but a public advocate for entertainers and athletes as having a day job and then having an influence beyond that. I think he's a relatively young man. He'd be the first to say in terms of 
you know, being a man, not just a, an age, quote unquote aging hooper, but he's finding himself. And I knew that I would be there for an important part of that journey as he sought his roots, you know, grew up a, a, a Nets fan and sought to flex his influence in political ways without maybe getting too political. But but this season that I followed, you know, remember it started with this Daryl Morey controversy in China. Yeah. And, you know, LeBron got a lot of flack for kind of pushing the silence and not wanting to talk foreign policy. I mean, Kyrie was in there saying, you know, what the fuck are we still doing here? And I think there's a lot of that stuff that was building up behind the scenes with Kyrie that ended up showing itself in the aftermath of the George Floyd protests, in the aftermath of the death of Breonna Taylor. And you know, this is a guy who bought a house or put a down payment on most of the house for the family of George Floyd. And I think that's the type of stuff he does every day behind the scenes that he gets almost no credit for. I think he's starting to accept the shine a little more without thumping his chest about it. And, and I hope that you know, between this book and, and some of the, the clarity that he's bringing to his beyond-the-court mission in, in the months and, and seasons to come, that he'll, he'll start to be seen as not a Kaepernick figure, but I think get that two, three, four, five years later shine where everyone agrees, like, okay, this is a guy we can all agree upon. He's not polarizing. He's about unity. And, and while he's still weird and goes off on tangents and pushes some of the wrong buttons, I think it's better to have a button pusher than not. Absolutely. And it's... I also appreciate the fact that I guess Kyrie has slowly transitioned from the Kerber enthusiasm Ted Danson anonymous <laughs> donator to the Larry David slightly more public. <laughs> and it's funny we kind of mention Kyrie and his experiences because I think this week is as good of a week to kind of look at those buttons that he pushes, but also the humanitarian efforts because we see the controversy with Nike. I mean, we are a sneaker podcast, so we're sure if we haven't already, we're going to have more episodes discussing the whole discourse of that. But then you see the work with the Pond project and something that I believe he's building a water purification system for villages in Pakistan. And as an Indian, that kind of prides me in a way because Bani is literally the Hindi word for water. And just mm. seeing that cultural awareness that we don't necessarily see, because to your point, much like his idol and his teacher, Kobe Bryant, especially near the end of his life, we would hear these anecdotes about Kobe being this generous guy and buying people houses or and, uh, attending certain events unannounced and just right. kind of raising people's spirits. I think I see something similar with Kyrie because a lot of the other subplots of your book that I really found fascinating was the Kobe-Kyrie relationship because in a sense, I think Kobe really wanted a pupil other than his daughter because obviously that's the natural pupil he's going to get and fortunately we couldn't get to see the fruits of that labor mm. because they were both taken away from us so early but Kyrie really was his star student and it was something that the anecdotes or the passages that you would have where they're having the communication between one another and Kobe is getting peppered by Kyrie about all these questions and you could sense that Kobe is happy with that because I think that's the type of people Kobe would have wanted if he was in Kyrie's spot and for me the ultimate kind of pinnacle of that relationship is unfortunately at the funeral itself we have all these people kind of waxing poetic about Kobe and rightfully so but I thought the most important thing was Kyrie taking some time with Team Mamba right because you had mentioned he actually just took them aside yeah it was kind of like the Oscars of basketball I don't think there have been that many goats in one arena at the same time maybe ever and yep. there's a tunnel 
part a part of the tunnel near the exit of Staples Center where a lot of these super A-listers were mingling and catching up. And Kyrie just walked up the staircase to the sidewalk of downtown L.A. and just was there for the girls of Team Mamba. They were on something like their 10th memorial service in a row. And he just said, you know, I'm here. I'm here to pick up that torch. Um, and it, it was meaningful to him. It, it, it still is. Just like he's got some parts of his spirit in him that he wants to kind of paint on this canvas, not just the fear is not real, beautiful mind mood board on his, yes. you know, office wall in his, in his place, but painting that canvas with Nike. And when he rediscovered his, as he was rediscovering his Sioux roots and the controversy over Standing Rock, he made sure there was a shoe there as he was, uh, learning about the pay disparity, the wage gap with the WNBA and really standing up for women and his black queens and Breonna Taylor, he made sure to empower his sister, who you know, was an influencer and a stylist, but handing over a shoe to her. And so I think that's why it struck me as a little odd that this latest mini-controversy, off-the-cuff comment section, you know, Yep. IG war with, with Nike cropped up because in speaking with, with Kai's sneaker designer, um, Ben Nothingcom at, at Nike, who's been with him throughout throughout the Kyrie's kind of explosion as a mainstream, multicolorway, international profit driver for Nike, you know, Ben said he wanted to pick up the mantle of, of Cope. He said, you know, after having all these kind of off-the-court friendly, you know, SpongeBob, very accessible shoes to everyone from my toddler daughter to grandfathers in India or what have you. And so he said, you know, according to Ben, you know, yo, the master has gone that route. You know, speaking of a more performance shoe, I'm going to take on that torch and carry that shit. Seven, eight, nines, we're going to focus on that and honor the legacy of Kobe. And so that was a shift, you know, as soon as Kobe passed, Kyrie wanted to paint that canvas of a more performance shoe. Had a little to do with Kyrie's kind of injury history and learning about wearing a more performance shoe himself. And so I think that was an instance of Kyrie really pushing Nike and them listening to him and re-engineering a shoe. Obviously, it's a long process. And so for him to come out and say that the eights had nothing to do with him, I that struck me as very off base for the way that Nike listens to talent, the way that Nike has always really listened to Kyrie and Kyrie himself, not just some boardroom full of right. execs who used to sit in his living room. There's an instance where Kyrie was sitting around back in, I believe it was Boston, and the, some of the design folks, some of the Nike suits were kind of talking to Kyrie's suits, his agent, what have you. And Kyrie's like, yo, this is my shoe. Talk to me. And so he is a creator, a writer, a designer, all this heady stuff that he considers himself to be. So maybe some of that push him in himself that is pushing the league, that is pushing player empowerment to kind of be this, well, we are the league. We take the power back. We are bigger than the Nike superstructure because we run it. You know, that's in him. Whether the particulars of him exactly not being involved in the design and marketing process are accurate is another example of Kyrie maybe not being as clear as he wants to be while having the right side of history within him.
Yep. I, it's funny you mentioned Ben. He is actually one of my groomsmen and a close friend, and this is the first shoe that he kind of pointed to me when we started seeing that influence of the Kobe Kyrie thing. So that Mamba mentality for me is probably one of the best Kyrie sneakers ever. So that for bond sure. has always been there. And it's funny you mentioned that about Kyrie because I couldn't help but think, given the circumstances of another case in the court of public opinion where we kind of had this dissolution between the Bryan estate and Nike, I'm wondering, is this Kobe kind of channeling his homage, lack of a better term, and granted this is just speculation from an armchair psychologist like me, of like trying to be his inner mama some more because so much of Kobe's reputation was, hey, we take this back if it's not good. And that's kind of what the interpretation I got reading that message was something was fundamentally off and I'm in agreement with you and I'll use this platform to kind of amplify that same sentiment is he can't not state that statement because there is a relationship there. I've heard it from friends because I've been able to be friends with those designers. But at the same time, I know enough about the industry. So it was a very unique way of expressing himself. And I really want to see what comes out of it. Because to your point, all the Nike Kyrie shoes, especially the 456 starting on, was a trilogy. And to your point, the 789 is going to be that next trilogy. And you can already kind of feel the performance shifting because as you alluded to, Kyrie has probably done as great of a job connecting to women and young athletes that I don't think I've seen with a Nike line, except for maybe Kobe. And even that was some of Kobe's earlier stuff with the fours and fives in particular. So fascinating stuff there. I wanted to use this opportunity to transition to Kyrie's teammate, KD. And if you don't mind me asking, what makes him so fascinating as a protagonist? Because I was kind of doing a mental checklist in my head, and this is the fifth book that has KD at the focal point of the plot. What were your dealings with him? Because the impression that I got reading your book was he is very much his, uh, what is it, Twitter bio, where he's him, he's going to do him, and he's going to chill. And I'm wondering why can't we take that man at his word in this sense? That's what I try to do is not read too much into who is Kevin Durant or what are his politics. And he says he's a hooper and that's what he is. He, he yep. likes to do him and he does chill. He certainly chills. And yes. I think it's the spirit of someone who has been on this, you know, overwrought, overreported quest searching for something. And, and I, I tried to find out what that was and, you know, stumbled into some interesting reporting, Steve Kerr and what have you. But I think it's really the product of, someone who's somewhat exhausted. You know, if you think about it, he's been on the road since he was a kid. And, you know, uh, I remember being at several of his high schools back in, in PG County and, and across that region. And his coach at, at this little school, still kind of rusty old school called National Christian, um, where, you know, they don't have a weight room. They don't really have a three-point line. It's kind of crappy rubber gym. They're all sharing a one big leg boot uh, and, and the coach was remembering when, when KD kind of swooped in and swooped out. And, and, you know, it was that simple. He said, I'm sponsored by Adidas. He's with Nike. Nike done figured out that he's really good. It's a wrap. And so yeah. KD up and goes to Oak Hill. And he's in the middle of nowhere. And then he already committed to Texas. No surprise there, so to speak. And, you know, he came back to prove himself at Montrose Christian and in Maryland, and, and so I think he was always searching there, but at the same time, it's a business, right? And, and I think his mentor, godfather, longtime coach back at the, again, crappy old rec center in PG County, which well, KD's fixed up and helped with the rate, weight, weight room a little bit, uh, this guy's name Stink. 
Think yes. Brown, and and he calls it uh, his phrase is quote the circuit board, which you know he he kind of describes as you know families are are plugged in. You go into the Nike socket or you go into the the three stripe socket, right? And this is like when you're early teen, and and at that point, fourteen years old or so, Stink said of KD, he realized at that point there's a business. It is a business, and and if you think about it, you know KD is kind of the last all-star of that one-and-done era. And so he's kind of accidentally leading this generation where, like, the enterprises are built around you and there's bag men and and all this, rather than the next generation, which I think he's probably inspired with his empowered authenticity, what have you, to be able to have the Jalen Greens, John Kamingas of the world, who, sure, you know, they are wrapped up in Adidas, Nike, what have you. But they also got paid on their own terms. They are swaggy enough to be themselves and not, you know, consumed by the Houston Rockets by even the Dubs. And so I think it's really interesting to see how those guys follow in the footsteps of what KD has done after what LeBron has done. And sure, KD is enthralled to the 11-year, $300 million deal he's got with Nike to, um, you know, he's, he's been with that as part of his family all the way through. But He's himself, and he's able to do that, I think, because of the, the cushion and the burden of the circuit board. Yeah, and thank you for going into the circuit board. It was probably my favorite chapter in your book. And, yeah, it's one of those things where we kind of see it kind of spoken about in hushed terms in like early movies like Hoop Dreams. But we are living in that era of transparency. And if there's anything that's kind of shrouded behind a veil, nope, not going to happen because people are going to want to push, and they're going to want to know – the full aspect of what it is that they're getting themselves into. And to your point as well, KD's got this influence because he's so unique on the court that I think it is going to be very hard to see the next KD. And subconsciously, or maybe he is a little more conscious, especially considering his boardroom projects, he is doing that part in shaping that next generation. And I think it's fascinating because obviously we talked a little bit about the Kyrie-Kobe relationship. KD kind of had his own Yoda in a sense, and that was another fantastic relationship you explored in the book. So I was wondering if you could kind of go into who Yoda is and kind of what sort of, I don't want to use the term closure because I think that's too powerful of a statement, but KD is almost soothed by Yoda in this sense because he gets this empathy that, okay, this guy's kind of gone through the wars like I'm going through the wars. You'll remember that Kevin Durant and and some old hipster named Steve Nash used to play together as peers. And so there was this assistant coach in OKC. Well, he's actually a, a trainer in OKC, and KD kind of made helped him get a job as a coach in OKC named Adam Harrington, great guy who is now conveniently also a coach in Brooklyn. How did these things work out this way, Matt? Well, I, he got no, to I'm Brooklyn sorry. before KD, but yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're boys. Anyway, uh, Adam <laughs> hooked up KD and and Nash at some workouts in L.A., then some more workouts after they after Steve retired. And it's kind of a joke. KD refers to him as Yoda without aging uh, Steve too much. But there was this year when Steve Kerr hired Steve Nash to be a kind of pseudo-glorified assistant, more like a consultant who would come in when he was in town or, or could make it make it up to the Bay. And players I've talked to love Steve in that room. He's just so agreeable, again, kind of almost as a peer more than a management figure. And I worked with Steve briefly at Bleacher Report, such an approachable dude, just kind of 
totally on the level with everyone from, you know, the 22-year-old sneakerheads at Bleacher Report to the suits at Turner. And it was interesting, that I thought, that KD was open about, eventually, about saying that, you know, he consulted Steve before he made the decision to go from OKC to the Bay. Um, that that in that, before Nash was a consultant, but sorry, Nash was a consultant in the Bay before KD got there, and he, he thought, you know, KD thought he'd made up his mind, and, and Nash knew that KD was on this kind of search and internal quest as a man, and, and he told KD that, you know, if you don't do this, if you don't make this jump as much of a, you know, almost sellout move as it may have seemed and still seems to a lot of people, you know, he would lose the opportunity for what Nash said to be in, quote, complete control, yes. which I think is a huge point of my entire book of the entire existence of a superstar and Katie joked, you know, like, okay, well, when you're in town in the Bay, like, Yoda's got to come to me first, right? Um, yep. Got to, got to, you know, then you can coach the other guys. Kind of joking again, but like, he said, like, you know, other than that, he was down. And then, quote, it, it's not about championships. Katie said that he told Nash, this is about challenging myself. And so I think that begins to describe this nebulous journey of Kevin Durant. And why it's brought him almost sort of the kind of GPS toward Brooklyn with Steve at the helm. Yeah, and I think of kind of as a closing note, that Nash relationship kind of outlines some really interesting points to me because I think the billion dollar question with KD has always been, what is he searching for? And we have to be kind of comfortable with the fact that only he knows and mm. we can't try to populate what we think. So the complete control line was kind of a revelation for me. One thing that I also found interesting was in page 88 of the book, and I remember because it kind of knocked me back, was the fact that he goes, I miss being young. And to your point about Kyrie earlier, we're like, these guys are young as it is in the grand scheme of things. But there is that innocence where I think KD was almost born 10 years too late because <laughs> I, I could see him thrive in the previous Jordan era. And hell, we even got the quote, and this is probably the most Michael Jordan sentence ever, that he did a sit-down interview with Cigar Aficionado, and he was talking about the fact that, hey, I can't play in this current era because there's just no concept of privacy. And I think KD would have been one of those guys that, yes, he truly is one of those players that can be plugged and played into any era, but from a just mental relaxation point of view, I think he should have probably been in a previous era because I think He's done a great job of handing, handling the scrutiny as good of a job as you can do as somebody that's so engrossed by the concept of Twitter. But yeah, there are times where I don't know the man. I probably will never meet him. I do worry about the fact that he has got this perception now where he's constantly on the phone. and kind but, of but at the same time, I think the Achilles year, the uh -huh. pandemic year, gave him a sense of freedom to not just be in the gym all the time, not just to be in a hotel room here. You know, he's never really had like a, he's had a brief marriage, but never like had a chance to like have a girlfriend or just, you know, be him and chill at, at length. And I think he was able to find himself, you know, maybe that just meant that he wanted to be a champion in addition yeah. to an entrepreneur or what have you. But at the same time, that pandemic year empowered other players in different ways, right? You've got Kyrie, now leading an almost activist brand of player empowerment to challenge yeah. kind of the very superstructures that pay his bills. And whereas Jordan said Republicans buy sneakers too, Kyrie probably thinks he could start up a Nike of his own. I actually think it's interesting. I talked to a lot of kind of OGs of activism and, you know, empowered players who weren't at nearly the LeBron level. And I had a really interesting conversation with Craig Hodges, 
You'll remember right. he's a guy who went to the White House and did this and uh, yep. was just kind of a rebel, before, again, before social media. And, and he was on the bus when when Jordan said Republicans buy sneakers too. He said <laughs> he told me that he kind of gave Jordan shit. Like, come on, right. man. But he also had been in Jordan's ear about maybe ditching Nike and forming his own black-owned apparel sneaker business in Chicago, which I yeah. thought – you know, it's a very Kyrie idea, and yes. and there's a lot of that spirit of Craig back in the day pushing MJ that I saw a lot this week in Kyrie pushing back on the Graham, and so there's a lot of these foundations of player empowerment that have been there for quite some time, you know, from the MJ generation to now and going forward. That I think we just you know we don't want to read too much into them, but but there are as as Kobe would say, you know, breadcrumbs that have been left by stars all along. Absolutely. And we definitely love a good Easter egg now because it allows us to tap into our imagination. I'm going to use the Craig Hodges suggestion to transition to another player that we didn't realize probably how sorely he was missed until we saw Brooklyn lose to the Milwaukee Bucks this year. But Spencer Dinwiddie, talk to us about him because he truly is the underdog disruptor as the chapter in your book kind of calls him out. He is fascinating. And there was two things in particular that that famous ubiquitous Jay-Z lyric about I'm not a businessman, I'm a business comma man, which we get thrown out so frequently. But Spencer Dinwiddie really is about that life. And then also the Dr. Heisenberg quote where he realizes that he can be the spark that eventually changes the mind. Like he has this concept of being a support player on the court. But I think reading your book, he was also that guy off the court as well for guys like Kyrie and Katie because he's so unique in terms of how he thinks. Look, I, I think Spencer knows exactly how to leverage NBA Twitter, the NBA culture, to his own personal brand's advantage. I mean, you yeah. see him joking around in the media about how he deserves a $125 million contract right now, and he knows how to launch his new Creator Galaxy app at the exact right time. He is one of us, and yet he is sort of using us, which all due respect to to Spence for you know being that non-LeBron to use the system to his own advantage while still being a mellow, humble, self-deprecating, funny, funny guy. I mean, you'll remember that he had that year where he he tried to make eighty-two shoes, like one for every single night. Now people forget that he had a Kaepernick shoe, a Muhammad Ali shoe, Rosa Parks, like. Yeah, it was it was really interesting, and, and he had to fight back. And I remember him him saying at the time, "If my name was James Harden, this would be the biggest story in the NBA." And so he had that chip on his shoulder. But I think he and a wave of people who maybe again at the time were kind of got a lot of shade thrown at them, or here today, gone tomorrow. I mean, he was in that spirit of Levar Levar Ball, right? Who had these you know overpriced kind of broken ass kicks for his kids, but like Lamelo has had his own signature shoe, owns part of, of a team down yeah. down under and or in New Zealand. And I don't know. It's, that's what I call those underdog disruptors, these guys who aren't afraid to push the boundaries of what the NBA will and won't let you do. Like Spencer's out here trying to, quote, unquote, IPO his own contract. Yeah. And you know, he's taking me inside these meetings. With, you know, he's got an army of lawyers going up against the kind of nerdy lawyers called in white shoe lawyers from the NBA. And, He's not afraid to push those boundaries, even if it's, 
you know, having some GoFundMe to pay for his fans, choose where he's going next. I mean, again, pushing buttons, but in a truly entrepreneurial, almost nerdy kind of way, which I, I think, again, will be at the vanguard of, of having guys come after him who are already asking him about, how do I IPO my own contract on Bitcoin? And right. I, I think he does that front-facing. What he does behind the scenes is uh, be a counsel and... Again, you know, he and Kyrie had a better relationship dating back to all-star appearances, and they attended briefly the same Harvard Business School seminar, and they were pals, and, and I think Spencer's been open about recruiting Kyrie. I think he's also was open to me about Kyrie maybe, you know, showing him where the door was, maybe not yes. pushing him out of it. Um, yes. I, I think I have every expectation that Spencer will be out of Brooklyn uh, for next season, and mm-hmm. Again, using that platform, using his place in the starting lineup to become um, both a public entrepreneur and, and a private counsel to whichever star um, he in, in undoubtedly attaches himself to in the, the next season. Yeah, he's very much a digital consigliere for a lot of these guys. <laughs> for sure. And uh, similar to what you had mentioned about Craig Hodges and the other player that kind of gets referenced a lot in your book is Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. Like, I think we're going to feel his impact long after mm. the game, and it won't even be about the game. It's just the game got him to our collective attentions, and that's where Spencer Dinwiddie starts hustling again. One other player that I wanted to just kind of have a quick conversation about was the president, a.k.a. Garrett Temple. And I know that one of the talking points that I had got when I'd received your book was talking about how LeBron is fully willing and able not to just be an owner, but possibly be the president. Could you kind of compare and contrast them? Because I think you have obviously LeBron James, the star of all stars on this stratosphere up here. But Garrett Temple is kind of going, lack of a better term, the Obama route, where I could see him start off as a city councilman member and kind of work his way up and have a journeyman-like career in politics. Or is there something more? I think he's considering it. I think it was really cool to be in this movie theater between where he and I used to live in Brooklyn, where he was hosting a screening of Just Mercy, the film about... Exactly. um, And talking about how that story of a kind of hero lawyer had led him to pick up the idea of going to law school himself. So in that kind of pandemic bubble period, he was studying for the LSATs. And, you know, he took me back that night after the movie theater to his place and we talked politics. You know, and, and I think he's not some intricate legislative head, but he knows how to navigate um, celebrity and practicality. He's definitely someone who sees the middle road rather than the activist road. He's about action, which a lot of guys say. I think he's actually the type of guy who would talk to the city council, who would talk to the activists, who did talk to the activists when he was the guy who, when he was on the Kings, almost had that that protest after the tragic death of Stephon Clark at the hands of the police, uh, almost shut down his game. And he was the one calling over the activists at the end of the game and talking for like an hour. To, to talk about solutions in the community and all that difficult work of progress that Obama talks about that the NBA likes to talk about, but Garrett is that guy who wants to take it down to the local level. So his family more than jokes that he could be the governor of Louisiana someday, which is where he's from. I don't think that's that far out of reach. I think Garrett understands that his education in influence, in politics, in activism, in advocacy, um, will take time. And again, these guys are young men. And I think 
Garrett would probably be pretty happy being a GM someday, which mm-hmm. is one path these guys can go down. And you know, yes. LeBron's KD is probably owners someday. And I think that will show the reflection of where this player empowerment era reshapes front offices and the, the idea of control at a management level. I think it'll be interesting to see where celebrities end up in the halls of power, whether they are uh, pulling the strings or influencing the strings behind the scenes on more than the gram. Excellent. Uh, so that is it. We've got time for one more question, and we kind of talked about some pseudo-heavy stuff, so I figured we'll let you go on a light one. So one of the details in the book is the fact that the New Jersey – or New Jersey, wow, I'm showing my age. The Brooklyn <laughs> uh, player thread is named Death Row, and there's this – Yeah, group chat. Yeah, the group chat, and it's connota- uh, connotation, rather, of it's us against the world. So as soon as I read that, my natural mental image went through the infamous vibe cover where you saw the four faces kind of put in directions of a compass. And I was like, oh, I wonder who Matt thinks is the Suge Knight, the Tupac, the KD, and the Dr. Dre of the net. So, Matt, if you don't mind, just as many of these as you want to talk through, go for it. And and that will have, end the episode after. So. I think it's pretty obvious that if there is a Tupac of the NBA, it is Kyrie Irving. Yes. I think uh, off the I do me and I chill and and certainly the blazing route, I think KD and Snoop have uh, more than a thing or two in common. Also, very good self-branders without having to do much of the work to get paid for it. I think DeAndre Jordan is kind of the uh, the class clown and 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 you know enforcer in terms of of protecting uh, his guys from from outside noise and so maybe he's got a little Suge vibes but with a smile. Yes. I don't know if there's a Dr. Dre uh, of the Brooklyn Nets. I don't know if there's a Dr. Dre of the NBA who is at once um, a creative force and a dominant businessman. I mean, I, I don't think. LeBron, I, I think LeBron's on some some super status that is beyond what Dre is to, yeah. to the music and culture game. So uh, Dre is a singular character, uh, you know, with with obviously a dark side as well. Um, I don't know. I, I think the Nets, um, you know, had their own big three coming out, and and I'm not sure James Harden is is, is uh, much of a, a maestro beyond um, beyond the court, and so. I think you got three out of the four on that vibe cover uh, in, inside my book, and, and maybe the, the Dre is yet to reveal himself. Uh, actually, it's eerie because I was kind of thinking the same thing. So thank you again for your time, Matt. Where can people follow you or find you on social media? Uh, you can follow me on social at uh, Sul Duggery, a, a very bad pun I'm stuck with as my handle for a long time, S-U-L-L-D-U-G-G-E-R-Y. On, uh, on Twitter and the gram. And the best place to pick up Can't Knock the Hustle is at my publisher's website, the HarperCollins website, which is hc.com slash the hustle. And that's where you can get it from uh, big box shops to your local independent booksellers, which uh, we should support more than ever. Yep. So with that, I want to thank you again for your time. This is me, Rohit, signing off from yet another episode of Sneaker History. And we look forward to hearing about what you do on and off the court. So thanks again, Matt. Thanks, man. Hey, everyone. This is Nick again. Before you take off, I wanted to thank you for listening to the Sneaker History Podcast. We just launched our new merch, including tees, stickers, keychains, and a bunch of other pieces you can grab to show your support for the podcast. You can purchase it now through our companion site, sittingtreasure.com. You can also get access to more episodes of the podcast by joining our Discord community at patreon.com slash sneakerhistory. Plus, we've got a bunch of other fun things going on in the community, 
including trivia nights, giveaways, access to sneaker raffles from around the world, release announcements, and my favorite, just good people helping good people get the sneakers they want. Plus, we're not bought by advertisers, investors, or other big money. I'm confident in saying this is the best sneaker community I've ever been a part of. We've also teamed up with a few partners to offer our supporters discounts. You can find some in the links for this episode and even more in our Discord. Give us a try, and if you don't enjoy it, you can always cancel the membership at any time. Last but not least, tell someone you like their kicks today. You never know how far a simple compliment can take you, and we all know how good it feels to be on the receiving end of someone showing appreciation. Thank you all for the support, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Peace. Hey, hey, Nick here again. Before you take off, I want to thank you for listening to the Sneaker History Podcast. Be sure to hop into our Discord to answer this episode's The Last Shot question and get to know our community of sneaker enthusiasts. If you'd like more insights on the trending topics in the sneaker world, I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com newsletter. And last but not least, tell someone you like their kicks today. You never know how far a simple compliment can take you, and we all know how good it feels to be on the receiving end of some appreciation. Thank you for all the support, and we will catch you on the next episode. Peace.